coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. We're recording this on June 15th, 2017, and this is episode 39. Politicoast is the podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we're at Politicoast Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash politicoast. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. Segment one, get on with it. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it! We still have to talk about the BC election, despite the fact it was now over a month ago, month and a half ago, not quite, and we don't know who's government yet. I mean, technically this week, Christy Clark announced her cabinet, so there is actual news beyond just sort of rampant poli-sci speculation. And they did get sworn in in a caretaker role, so they promised not to bring in any new policies or make any significant changes. Although that seems to have kind of been broken already when Sam Sullivan announced they've changed their policy on municipal referendums for transit funding. So this is a good step, at least. It's finally a sort of olive branch to the municipalities and the cities that voted strongly against the Liberals, except Sam Sullivan. I, I like the policy, but, you know, to announce it, very quickly after the we're not going to make any changes announcement seems a little inconsistent. For sure. But even sort of describing your going to fail cabinet as a quote unquote caretaker, which is not a thing really in the Westminster system. You do have the caretaker convention, but that's mostly during election period, which we have passed now. As I said, a month and a half ago. But what we have in this cabinet is some hints at who at least won't be speaker because the 20 odd people appointed to cabinet can't be speaker. Among them, as you mentioned, Sam Sullivan, some people have pegged his name, and Linda Reed, who was the previous speaker. She said she wasn't going to do it, but there was kind of the maybe she, she seemed to like it. Some people appreciated her in the role, but now both of them are out. So you can kind of go down the list of other liberals who might come forward. Because one thing Christy Clark did say at the start of this week was it's the government's job, or at least the convention is the government puts up a speaker, which is more of a custom. Yeah, and it also leaves the door open for the speaker, right, for a liberal speaker to resign if this government falls. And then, oh, it's the NDP who are governing now. They should put up a speaker and get into all the difficult math of how that's going to work. Yeah, it's a very neat rhetorical trick to try to frame an argument which the NDP and Greens have pushed back on in the last couple days to really say, actually, the tradition is more that speakers retire when they don't want to be speaker anymore, not when the government changes hands. This doesn't actually happen much in Canadian history. I think there's only like one or two times when a government's fallen and another government comes in before an election. And at least in those times, there hasn't been a speaker resignation. Now, there's been lots of speaker resignations because people just stop wanting to be speaker. But it's this sort of unique situation that we're in that's potentially politicizing it. But then on the other hand, we had on, I think it was Wednesday or maybe Tuesday. It's all blurring together now. Mike Smith publishes this story in The Province with basically a conversation he had with Andrew Weaver, the Green Party leader, where he kind of just recounts how Weaver was talking about the uh, negotiations with the NDP. And it sounded very much like Weaver was under the impression that the deal would only work, that they signed if the Liberals put forward a speaker, because then that would be a bit more stable. It would be 44 NDP Greens to... 42 Liberals and a Speaker. Yeah, and a few people pointed out the NDP Greens problem isn't so much a political one or a public relations one. It's a basic math one where they just don't have the votes to consistently carry a majority. They're kind of butting right up against a tie-breaking vote here with the Speaker getting involved. So, you know, it's pretty clear why Andrew Weaver would want the speaker to come from the liberals on this. But it does kind of raise the question of, you know, why would anyone promise that? Or why would anyone accept that statement as 
guaranteed during the negotiations when the speaker question still remained a big one and still does to this day. Well, and the Liberals were really happy to jump on this article and say, oh, look, trouble in paradise. The coalition, quote, not coalition, alliance is breaking before they've even been sworn in, which led Weaver and Horgan yesterday morning to do a surprise joint press conference where they said, no, we're, we're still happy. It's all Christy Clark who's dragging her heels and politicizing the speaker and sort of trying to redeflect that blame and making those arguments we just talked about. The other thing that was really interesting in this sort of press conference is Andrew Weaver, I think, has a tendency to just not be political enough or politically smart enough. So he'll just kind of say what's on the top of his mind. Probably what got him into this Mike Smith interview problem. He's just like, yeah, we talked about that. He started talking about Norman Spector, who was on his uh, negotiation teams. And he suggested that some of the things Norman's been saying on Twitter butt up against the limits of the non-disclosure agreement because Norman Norman's a avid tweeter and has strong opinions about everything. And so he seemed to be suggesting playing into some of these, you know, there's trouble in paradise things without saying this was said at this point. He obviously didn't take kindly to Weaver saying he might have broken a rule. And so things got tense on BC Poly Twitter for a day and a half. Unrelated to that entire discussion, I started asking Norman about one, like, I don't even remember what it was, but I questioned him on like a speaker question, just not even cruelly, I didn't think. And then five minutes later, he said, I'm too stupid to follow him. And he blocked me. Someone else asked a similar question and also got blocked. So there's a growing portion of us, I guess, on the Norman Spector block list. It does make me wonder, because I know we talked about this when Andrew Weaver announced he was going to work with Norman Spector. It was like, is this the best choice you want to go for? And he has the sort of past with the progressive conservatives at the federal level. And so maybe there was some tactical advantage to get in with the liberals there. But this sort of bitter Twitterness doesn't really reflect well on Dr. Weaver to me. Yeah, or at the very least, uh, Weaver should have had a much stronger non-disclosure agreement written up, or at least one that prevented uh, Spectre from talking about the negotiations in much detail or kind of opining on the alliance until, you know, they've at least actually formed government. And even then, it's still kind of risky to have your negotiators opining about the legitimacy of your deal or the strength of it, because it kind of undermines it. Maybe Weaver was hoping Norman could get him into a deal with the BC Liberals, and when that didn't work, there were bad feelings behind the scenes. Who knows? But it's been kind of amusing to watch, at least. So the next step is that on... June 22nd, next Thursday, the legislature will finally be recalled and we'll have our first look at maybe the end of Christy Clark's time as premier. At least she's suggested it will be as much. We'll find out who gets to be speaker next week, if anyone. And then I saw this wonderful tweet from, I think it was Ian Bailey from, I think he's at the Globe and Mail, where he was talking with Liberal MLA Mike DeJong, who suggested the Liberals might take 10 days to get to a vote on the throne speech. And that's not 10 calendar days. That would be 10 legislative sitting days. So we're now looking into July before we have a vote, because I guess they can drag the speech itself out over a couple days and then have a few days of debate and amendments and votes on the amendments before finally getting to the confidence vote itself. So this is the election that never ends. <laughs> yeah, it's just ridiculous because basically everyone knows how everyone's going to vote on this coming into it, unless there's some major surprise that'll you know make the greens reconsider their alliance because that's about the only way i could see this confidence vote going and it would have to be big in order to get them to publicly walk back their agreement with the ndp so i just can't see it or i can't see the benefit beyond getting you know a couple extra weeks in power but even then you're not really doing much so it seems to be a little odd Unless there's just paperwork behind the scenes that Christy Clark needs to sign off before 
that she's like, I just need to keep in through June so I can like sign the next site C dam contract. But even that, that doesn't seem realistic enough. Like what's plus, the point? Yeah. And plus they've promised not to, uh, stop construction during the review of that anyway. So it, yeah, it does bring up the point of just, you know, why it's done this out too much. And, and the only reason I can possibly think is what I've mentioned before of just trying to drag it out as long as you can to see if the uh, alliance starts to fracture at all. The other trouble for everyone right now is there have been two post-election polls. In mid-May, Main Street released one that had the Liberals at 38, the NDP at 39, and the Greens at uh, 22%. I think Main Street always had the Greens a bit high, though. Ipsos, this past week, put out their numbers, which had the Liberals at 42, the NDP at 40, and the Greens at 15, which is basically bang on what we had on election night. Both of these suggest the province is deeply divided. 41% in the Ipsos poll would be fine with the NDP putting up a partisan speaker and 39% would rather go to another election. People just are basically still where they're at. If you like the NDP, you're probably more favorable to them putting up a partisan speaker who votes to break the ties their way. If you're liberal, you're probably a little bit more towards having another election and trying. But I just don't get the sense that right now an election will do anything different. Of course, campaigns matter, but I think we're waiting for these numbers to really shift before anyone kicks it back to a vote. Yeah, campaigns definitely do matter. And we saw that with the recent UK election where the polls at the start of the campaign were a lot different than the results at the end. But here, when we just had a big campaign and you know the numbers shifted a bit, but they didn't really move a huge amount from the start of the campaign. It was... The province was pretty split before, and it ended up pretty split afterwards. And, you know, it's likely the same thing's going to happen again if we go into another campaign. You know, maybe someone will do something really stupid during the, the throne speech or one of the little bits of shenanigans on one side or the other of that and lose a bunch of uh, public trust and confidence. But, you know, they have a full campaign cycle to go through to regain that so it's just a big question of you know what will another 35 days or so of campaigning get us with that the last 35 didn't well just to touch off the mention you had briefly about the uk it's just been fascinating to see that they had an election got a hung parliament still managed to basically put together the conservative dup deal that they're just putting final touches on and they're going to have a throne speech or a queen speech on Wednesday. They're getting their shit done in half the time. And their system is much more complicated because they have all these different small parties. And they're still like, no, let's get back into parliament as fast as we can. I mean, they have the ticking cliff of Brexit coming up. But come on, we can do this, BC. But I guess there's only one other piece of sort of BC election news. And maybe you can walk us through this Elections BC investigation into the federal NDP. So Elections BC is looking into flyers that were sent out by two federal NDP MPs, Nathan Cullen and Sheila Malcolmson, and to see whether they've engaged in, quote, unregistering election advertising during the provincial campaign. So in both of these cases, what's alleged is that the MP mailings that every member of parliament is entitled to were used for partisan purposes during the election campaign. Specifically, there was a phrase in Nathan Collins' one, which was near word for word, a BC NDP campaign slogan. And then Malcolmson's flyer attacked the federal and provincial liberals for failure to respond to the opioid crisis. And the allegation here is that basically both of them have used these to kind of try and influence or do a little campaigning on the federal parliament's dime for the BC election of their fellow NDP uh, members. Now, there's a bit of a tricky issue here on exactly who has jurisdiction the federal parliament's rules prohibit the use of these 
uh, are called 10 percenters, because they go to 10% of the constituents, for provincial or municipal elections. So there's a question here on whether or not the Board of Internal Economy and Parliament's going to have jurisdiction here or elections BC, because the rules here say that you have to be registered here to actually put out campaign advertising for or against a party. But the way I see it, like either way, they're, they should be in trouble with both or none. regardless. And that's really going to come down to the facts of this. Yeah, BC doesn't have many elections rules, but I guess the one we do have is this weird like registration system where if you say literally anything about the election during the election to talk about parties or policies even, and try to promote or oppose anything, you're supposed to register with Elections BC. The sort of minimal exemption they did is if you're doing like a handful of leaflets, like five or ten, maybe you can get away with that. But even a small charity who puts out a couple tweets could technically get in trouble if they didn't register. So if MPs are going to be involved in campaigning, they should be registered. Of course, they shouldn't be using their constituent mailers, which are funded by the parliament for them to use as members of parliament. So, like you say, it's going to come down to the facts of it. Part of it, I think, is this problem with the NDP being the same party at all levels. And it's also just kind of the mindset of New Democrats where you like the same kinds of catchphrases. So talking about a better BC or talking about... Making life more affordable in this case. Making life more affordable. These are NDP catchphrases. They're freaking Justin Trudeau catchphrases at this point. So it's hard to say. I don't know which way it'll come about. I think MPs should be a lot more careful about the things they put out in their official capacity as an MP. But this could also be a sort of witch hunt looking for more trouble to stir up. I know in the last by-election in Ottawa-Vanier... They were trying to go after the NDP for talking too much with Fair Vote Canada when I'm not sure if there was anything more than some smoke around that. And in this case, it was actually referred to Elections BC by the BC Liberals. So there's definitely a partisan angle to it here. But you know, it, it is, I think, still an important issue that should be addressed. And just one other detail. At least one of those mailers got sent out before the writ officially dropped but didn't actually go to people until after the election season had started. So that's that other wrinkle in there. Canada too. Post being the wonderfully efficient service that it is. Oh yeah, they're just great. Uh, <laughs> Moving on to segment two, Supreme Retirement. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Beverly McLaughlin, announced her retirement this week. And we've asked friend of the show and occasional contributor... Micah, to share his thoughts on what McLaughlin's legacy is and her potential replacements. Fellas, thanks for bringing me back on the program today. Chief Justice McLaughlin is going to be remembered as an incredibly influential jurist after serving on the Supreme Court of Canada for 28 years, including 17 as the Chief Justice. She was only 37 when she became a judge, a child compared to most of our judges, and was on the Court of Appeal at 42. Many of McLaughlin's Court of Appeal decisions are still cited today. That is just how good she was at a young age. At 45, she was appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada by Brian Mulroney. She served there since 1989. She became Chief Justice in 2000. When McLaughlin arrived at the Supreme Court of Canada, the Charter was only seven years old, and the Court was just starting to interact with the constitutional beast as cases slowly matriculated to the show. Suddenly, courts are armed with this explicit power to overrule lawmakers when they interfere with individual rights, and as a result, McLaughlin has been seen as more of an activist judge. But I think that that term is unfair for a couple of reasons. First, the Charter provided courts with tremendous power, and McLaughlin was basically on the front lines of that interaction. But second, it really is debatable whether McLaughlin is any more activist than her predecessors. Judges have been overturning laws for some time now, and I haven't seen any evidence that she was any more activist than her predecessors. Nonetheless, 
one can clearly see a civil libertarian streak throughout her decisions, which you can really identify uh, as a signature in the court's split decisions before she became Chief Justice. Her decisions on tobacco advertising, for example, her early decisions on assisted dying, she was advocating for freedoms like freedom of speech and freedom of choice regularly, even where it may have been uncomfortable to support that kind of position. It was a principled position. And she didn't really back down when she was challenged either. Uh, perhaps famously, McLaughlin phoned Peter McKay to tell him that Nadon was an inappropriate nominee for the Supreme Court of Canada because he did not meet the requirements to represent Quebec's seat on the Supreme Court. Harper later suggested that her actions were inappropriate and ultimately stored a legal hornet's nest. Just about anybody in a position to comment on whether or not McLaughlin's actions were inappropriate, uh, and this includes the Canadian Bar Association and the Geneva-based International Commission of Jurists, all of these organizations and legal minds said that Harper's government should never have made those suggestions and that they were inappropriate. But even before that showdown, I think what we can take away from McLaughlin's legacy is that she really may may well have been the most powerful woman ever in Canada. McLaughlin had judges talking to each other uh, rather than sending around memos in the Supreme Court, leading to an extremely high unanimous decision rate. It changed the complexion of Supreme Court of Canada decisions, whereas earlier there would have been several split decisions on any one issue. It would have been very hard to identify what the law is. You would have had to really drill down into concurring decisions to figure out where the majority and this concurring decision and that concurring decision agreed, or even look into the dissents to see where you could find four or five judges on a single issue, and that would be the law. McLaughlin stripped away those silos and produced decisions that stated what the law was going to be according to all of the judges, like I said, at a much higher unanimous rate. Even if the language as a result was a little bit muddier, the decisions were nonetheless more clear to the legal community. Her presence on the court was, as Emmett McFarland said, bold and cautious. She brought out some massive decisions all over the legal map, but she took a principled approach, mindful of the goals of Canadian government. Like I said, her legacy will be lasting. Now, finally, one needs to ask who's going to take her place. First is Chief Justice. I would love to see uh, Rosalia Bella as the Chief Justice. I don't always agree with her decisions, but her concern for getting the right decision on the facts and the law pours out from her eloquent words. She is the most senior judge, and that used to be how Chief Justice was appointed, but that tradition has sort of died away over time. Uh, there is also a convention that the Quebec, uh, Quebec jurist will serve as Chief Justice after someone from the rest of Canada does. So betting money right now is on uh, Justice Wagner, given his competence. McLaughlin's departure also means a vacancy in British Columbia. And according to convention, our province would get the spot. However, what we saw from Malcolm Rowe's appointment was that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has opened up the application process to the entire country. And some speculate that the government may opt to make a statement on inclusion and diversity now that Chief Justice McLaughlin uh, is stepping down. However, assuming the judge does come from British Columbia, I have my own three picks. I like Justice Newberry, Bennett and Saunders. All three have had important decisions upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. Justice Bennett, for example, just wrote a decision on warrantless entry and search by police that was upheld in the Patterson case. Newberry, uh, on the other hand, uh, had a decision in the BC Freedom of Information Association case, which upheld the requirement that third-party sponsors register with the chief electoral officer during elections. So given their, not really success rate, but their eloquence, their knowledge of the law, their level of respect, I like those three. For Dark Horses, I'm going with uh, Bauman and Harris, but we'll have to see what comes out of the application process. All right, Bush and Scott, thanks again for bringing me back, fellas. Thanks for that, Micah. As he basically said, I mean, McLaughlin was 73, so she's basically facing mandatory retirement next year. So this gives her 
an early retirement, essentially. But I don't think I have too much to add. I mean, when I look at the history of cases with McLaughlin's name on it, they're ones I'm very sympathetic to. They're ones I'm personally very proud of for our country. We have the Bedford rulings that knock down the sort of unjust prostitution laws. We have the Carter decision on assisted dying. We have a number of decisions relating to medicinal marijuana. And we just have this sort of streak of sort of civil libertarian, let people live as long as they're not harming each other kind of approach that works really well in a liberal society. So I think she will be missed from that point of view. But I think as Micah sort of talked about, she had a really good way of building consensus around the court to make sure that the decisions weren't these sort of split decisions that five years from now we'd have to be revisiting. But it was a very consensus-based court, and that will hopefully continue because I think it's healthier for our democracy if our court's not as partisan as these states, which it's nowhere near. But I guess the bigger question going forward is sort of who will be the replacement and I don't know the internal machinations enough to comment on who's going to be the next chief justice. You can just go back a couple minutes and listen to Mike on that. But I think the political question here is who will Trudeau appoint to fill that vacancy? We saw for Malcolm Rowe, he had this sort of panel to accept nominations and sort of recommend a shortlist. And then he chose from that shortlist. And I assume he'll do that again. But the question is, will he sort of betray BC? He suggested for the Maritimes, all consider qualified candidates from across Canada. Could, <laughs> could he screw BC in this one? Yeah, he did eventually side with Atlantic Canada on that one. But, you know, it's, it's definitely a possibility. And he's hinted before that you know, maybe the regional thing really shouldn't be his priority on that. And, you know, maybe some other factor will be chosen as kind of the deciding one here. I mean, I, I'm already picturing the Andrew Coyne column that that will inevitably generate as a re result. But um, I think it just remains to be seen at this point. The announcement's less than a week old, and we really haven't heard much on it. And I'm sure the kind of behind-the-scenes machinery is starting to get uh, gear into action here. But it'll still be probably... a few weeks to a few months before you really start to narrow down on who that replacement's likely to be. Yeah, there's no rush on it. McLaughlin's not stepping down from the bench until the end of this year, so that's six months to do run through this process. I think BC does have a wealth of legal expertise from lots of different walks of life, so saying you can't find a qualified judge in BC who maybe meets a couple other of the diversity checkboxes, as you will, probably ring a bit hollow and just give a lot of fodder to the Conservatives and NDP to criticize the Liberals for taking BC for granted, just as they could have taken the Maritimes for granted. I think we'll see a BC judge get nominated. He might even make the same mistake of being like, well, regionalism is such an old hat, but it's it really those, isn't, though, yeah. which is the problem. Or you know, it's one of those defining lines in Canadian politics, and it isn't going to go anywhere soon. Finally, for our third segment, Don't Fear the Kiefer, the quasi-controversial municipal news this week was Vancouver City Council defeated a motion to change a permit to allow this 105 Kiefer Street development. For a bit of background, this is a development proposed by the BD Development Group, one of the major developers here in Metro Vancouver, to build a 12-story condo building. It was originally slated to be 13 stories with 107, 137 condos, but they sort of cut that down to 12 stories and 106 market units and 25 social housing and some cultural space. Basically, it would have been in the heart of Chinatown, which is Canada's oldest Chinatown and a very sort of historic part of our cultural heritage. It's actually been designated a national historic site by the government of Canada. But the design of it sort of 
offended people, let's say, because it fit the kind of bland, I think Andy Yan described it as Vancouverism architecture, which is a lot of either red brick and glass or mostly glass and not a lot of feeling to it. So this building had generated a lot of local opposition because of its sort of lack of reflection of the cultural community and the fears that it would gentrify the neighborhood, that it would be a lot of luxury condos in an area that's older. So there was a lot of local opposition to this. The neighborhood's older, a lot of the residents are retired, and just fear a sort of rapid gentrification that would push them all out. Uh, so before I give my thoughts on this, just quick disclosure that my company that I work for is, does business with BD and... I've done work on a few of their projects, but I neither me nor my employer have any involvement in the 105 Kiefer project. And, you know, these thoughts are, of course, my own and, you know, all that standard disclaimer stuff that... Um, that we should put on every episode because we both have full-time jobs outside of this. But. Yeah, we probably should. This is just the first time mine's intersected with the podcast in any way. Uh, but yeah, so these are just all my own thoughts on this. So yeah, this has been kind of one of those developments that every now and then comes up and gets oddly controversial and tends to be a real focal point. And if the city wasn't experiencing such an acute housing crisis, I don't think it would be quite as fraught or tense. So I guess my first thought is like this you know, one project really isn't, you know, the hill either side should die on over it. You know, the build more housing now side you know it's this is a fairly sensitive one and it's you know it's one project and while you do get those kind of death by a thousand cuts sort of situations you know this won't make or break housing affordability and on the flip side it's a parking lot right now and putting up a condo is not going to change the destiny of Chinatown because the parking lot is now a condo building so in one sense, this whole thing, I think, was a little overblown. But at the same time, like there's, like I said, it's a parking lot. So there's definitely a case to be made that I think there's basically anything is a better use of it. And 25 social housing units plus a whole bunch of market units is almost certainly a better use than what it is currently being used for. And since the rezoning fell through... What's probably going to happen is BD's going to go back to their architect and say, hey, come up with a plan that meets the current zoning. And that's most likely going to be a 90-foot market rate condo building, which is currently allowed under the zoning and wouldn't necessitate the same sort of public input and hearing that this one has because there'd be no rezoning involved. This, to my mind, is sort of a symptom of just a broader lack of big vision on, ironically from vision, on housing policy in Vancouver. Because when you don't have that sort of overarching plan, which I think they're starting to develop, that was that housing reset and talk about building the right kind of density. Yeah, and they did just announce the Canby Corridor project, which we'll be talking a bit more about next week. But when you don't have that whole plan in place, you get these sort of one-offs of like, should we do this? Well, does it fit? And you have nothing to weigh it against. And when it comes into a neighborhood like this, that's where I think you kind of just naturally will generate the pushback. And especially given Vancouver's complicated, to say the least, history with the Chinese-Canadian community. And by complicated, I mean there are parts of Vancouver where they're still not allowed to live under the under the covenants on the property which aren't enforced but in fact a lot of like the the zoning stuff actually goes back to kind of that you know we want to be somewhat exclusionary but not actually put it in such blatant language in the city laws so there's all that kind of complexity and history historical baggage thrown on top of this issue and so that's why i was actually kind of interested to see andy yan who's a pretty well-known figure, I guess, in the Vancouver urban development scene. He's a professor at UBC. Uh, he had this column op-ed in the Vancouver Sun 
pretty much coming up strongly against this proposal, calling it a failure of development and planning to embrace social, cultural, and historical context and neighborhood need. And he said this should not be rewarded, and he doesn't want today's council decisions to produce tomorrow's grounds for reconciliation, which is a pretty in damning indictment that this is basically, if it went through, like a giant middle finger to the Chinese-Canadian community. I think he knows this issue much better than I am. And as I read it, I was like, okay, he isn't anti-development, if you read his broader stuff, but he sort of identified that this project was probably not the right decision for this zone, in his opinion. And I'm I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, because the rezoning policy that this was done under was part of the Chinatown redevelopment plan, which was put in place, I believe, around 2010-2012, kind of in that early part of this decade. And there was a lot of input from the local community. It was There was a pretty big engagement process that happened there. And one can debate about whether or not this current proposal, you know, fits with the local area. And I'll point out that this was a 12-story proposal and one block away, there's a 15-story building there right now that was recently built. So, you know, there's there's an argument to be made that it's not that out of character with some of the recent developments on there. But I think this, like you said, kind of isn't so much about the one building as kind of the broader context here. And that, I think, is probably one of the biggest problems with kind of the spot rezoning that happens is, you know, kind of who's ever in the immediate vicinity of that spot rezoning feels like they're bearing the brunt of the problems with the city and the housing and everything else. And when you do that kind of lot by lot situation becomes much more messier than kind of a broad everybody's going to have to kind of shoulder some of the burdens and also get some of the opportunities from a much more broader everywhere is going to get some development prospect and you know if we didn't have crazy big minimum lot sizes out in point gray area and you know you could didn't have, you know, big setbacks and parking minimums basically require, and, you know, if 70% of the city's land wasn't restricted to detached single family housing, you know, maybe this wouldn't have been such a big issue because a lot of that development would be spread around a lot more evenly. I think Vancouver's sort of approach to housing policy suffers from the same kind of problems as Christy Clark's approach to transit and infrastructure, which is I'm going to build a bigger bridge over here to ease the burden off this one congested spot. But we sort of know that as you add more lanes to a highway, there just comes more cars to fill that and you just get a new traffic jam or traffic jam moves slightly down the road. And you could say, all right, we just need to build bigger roads everywhere, but then you can build a better plan to figure out how all those roads and to deal with all that traffic and to mix in some transit and other infrastructure to handle all the different needs Vancouver's kind of like just adding lanes or adding extra spaces, but only in a couple spots for people to live. And so they just get filled in by either other rich Canadians, rich foreign buyers, people who just sit on it to flip it. You get all these additional problems because it becomes an investor sort of stranglehold. And then there's nowhere for people to afford because we don't have the supply we need. And that's definitely a problem. And like, if you look at the recently announced Canby plan, those are bunch of areas there that are within a fairly short walk of the Candleline stations that are still going to be single-family housing well into the future, and there's no plans to change that. And, you know, the looking at it, basically anything that's not on Canby or a major thoroughfare is still stuck in this kind of detached housing mold, and it's definitely presents problems. And this kind of spot rezoning thing is a huge problem. There was a recent heritage redevelopment that just got approved from the city on Tuesday, and I actually went to that one. And, you know, we had all but two of the city councillors, a whole bunch of professionals there from the city, from the developer, and, you know, a bunch of neighbor groups and everything come out there. And, you know, there was a lot of person hours spent arguing over six units in a heritage redevelopment and 
whether or not we there should be a tree that gets removed so a building can be shifted four feet. Like it's it's definitely not an efficient way to go about development here. Well, the one final thing I'll say on this segment is what was also interesting to see is how the votes broke down in the end because it was an eight to three vote with Gregor Robertson and most but not all of the Vision Vancouver councillors, five of six of them, voting against the project. As well, they also had NPA councillor George Affleck and Adrian Carr from the Green Party vote against it to make up the eight. So that meant you had a Vision councillor join the other two NPA councillors just to sort of mix up the party lines. So it kind of, I guess, just goes to show how complicated these things are. And at least it's not just always by party lines in Vancouver, even if it was mostly. And while this rezoning application has gotten rejected, like I mentioned, you know, BD still owns the property and it's probably just going to be putting up more market rate units that meet the current zoning so they don't have to go through quite as arduous a process. And just for context, they first submitted the application in 2014. So it kind of gives you an idea on how long and drawn out this process is. And that has its own costs that eventually get transferred into the new owners or renters of any places. But also, Mayor Robertson and Visions made some noises about possibly revisiting the Chinatown plan after this. And I definitely get the feeling that's not going to be looking to add more density than's currently permitted by the plan. If anything, I think that's kind of one of the unfortunate consequences of this whole thing is we might end up with a scaling back of development in that area. And, you know, the gentrification concerns are definitely real, but Chinatown's also in a very good location in a lot of ways. And people are going to want to move there because there's a SkyTrain station. It's directly adjacent to downtown. Like it's, it's the sort of place people often pay a premium for because it's within walking distance of work and of a lot of people's works and amenities. And that's not the sort of thing you can just keep people out of indefinitely. And, if there isn't new construction there and new housing to absorb those new residents, there's a good chance they'll end up moving in anyway and outbidding the current residents for what little housing there is there compared to the demand. And I just think it's unfortunate that kind of this one controversy may have repercussions that'll hurt housing affordability and increase the rate of gentrification in the area. Moving on to quit dates, Tofifi has gone from being a typo to a potential act of Congress as Representative Mike Quigley has introduced the Communications Over Various Feeds Electronically for Engagement Act. And this would require all tweets and other kind of social media to be preserved by the National Archives and Records Administration, as basically anybody with an internet connection last week saw. Donald Trump made this um, horribly amusing typo on his Twitter feed and then deleted it like a day, 12 hours, something like that later. And it kind of remains a bit of an open question on whether or not that was legal or there was a requirement to archive it. I recommend check out Opening Arguments, the podcast. They did a good episode on this. But yeah, it might actually be the case that Donald Trump's now going to have to sign the Tofifi Act. Well, it's a Democrat bill in a hyper-partisan Congress, so it's probably not going to go anywhere. But I want to come back to this idea that it was a typo, because I heard it from Sean Spicer, the man who would never lie about anything, that... <laughs> Those in the know know what it means, and maybe this is what he meant. But in more serious U.S. news, today the big story was that special counsel Robert Mueller has announced that there is an FBI investigation into whether Donald Trump obstructed justice. This follows the firing of FBI Director James Comey and his testimony last week, in which he basically says... I was fired because I wouldn't stop investigating this Russia stuff. 
I don't think we even needed uh, James Comey to say that because Trump admitted in an interview on national television that that's exactly why he fired Comey. So I don't have tons to really say on this because there's tons of U.S. politics podcasts that explore it in much greater depth. And it's frankly quite deep and over my head. But all I will say is that the most frustrating part for me is that way the U.S. is set up right now, and I get why it has to be this way, the FBI can't indict or you know f- press charges against Trump while he's a sitting president. Another reason they shouldn't have elected him, <laughs> as though that needed to be said. So it's going to come down to whether this Congress will ever get off their ass and move to impeach him, which at least now everyone's using the word quite regularly. It's... I think one of those situations where it's probably going to be only a matter of time, but it might be the case where that's only going to happen when Trump becomes so unpopular and he becomes such a weight around the neck of every congressman and woman up for re-election that their jobs are on the line, even in the horribly gerrymandered um, U.S. election districts. And at that case, yeah... that's probably when they're going to actually make a move on it when their own political careers are online. And, you know, one would hope that there's enough patriotism and principle left in Congress, although that seems less and less likely every day that they just, you know, go through with it because it's, you know, the right thing to do. And not to mention, I'm sure they'd prefer to work with Pence, but like it's the sort of situation where, you know, even just the bits we do know about Russia's involvement in there and then Trump's obstruction of justice, like anyone who seriously cares about you know, America should be taking this seriously. And it's disappointing that the situation is so par- politicized and partisan that, you know, it's probably going to take a Democrat plus 20 swing in the electorate to get that to happen. Just to put this in perspective, the BC Lottery Commission, which actually lets you bet online through playnow.com on US and UK politics, but not Canadian or BC politics, because we're not allowed to have that much fun here. They are putting the odds at Trump being impeached in his first term at 1.9, which is better than two to one odds that he won't make it through. Well, moving back to Canada, we have our first out since the Conservatives chose Andrew Scheer to be the leader, and there's no honeymoon period here. Forum released its numbers through the Hill Times. The Liberals are at 42%, which is up seven points from their last poll in April. The Conservatives are treading water at 34%, down a point. The NDP are actually down five points to 12%. Although, looking at their trend, it seems like April was the NDP's high watermark in the last sort of 6-12 months for Forum when their low mark, I think, was September around 9%. So, the NDP is still a party. The Greens are down one point at 6 and the Bloc are also at 5%. So, what this basically shows is that Canadians haven't really noticed any change with Andrew Scheer and aren't paying any more attention to the Conservatives. The headline sort of ran that there's no post-leadership bounce. You'll see this with some leadership elections. People get really excited about Michael Ignatieff becoming Liberal leader or For something For some like reason that. that happened. And they'll go, their party will go up in the polls a couple because they're like, oh, he or she is new and exciting. No one thinks either of those things about Andrew Scheer. Well, I think part of it is you know, a lot of people just found out who Andrew Scheer was when they read the papers after the leadership election was in, the results came in. And part of it is he ran a fairly low-profile campaign, really kind of targeted in the base. And, you know, that worked for Andrew Scheer, but those were that 34%. That's who those people were already. So the people he made himself known to kind of already appeared in the conservative numbers. And, you know, the large field of candidates, you know, he kind of just got lost in the crowd because he wasn't Kevin O'Leary or Maxime Bernier. Not that that I think Kevin O'Leary would have given them a poll bounce, but... Yeah, but the point is, Canadians just didn't really know who he was. And I I saw more than a few headlines or articles with the 
who's Andrew Shear on 28th of May, right after the results came in and he was elected. Um, other possible reasons is, you know, the Liberals NDP maybe did a better than expected job of branding him early. Although I haven't seen a huge amount of evidence to support that, but that is one option. Or, yeah, the other thing is just might not be that inspiring a choice for a leader. Yeah, I don't think Stephen Harper probably had a poll bounce when he was elected because most Canadians probably also did a similar. Uh, might have gotten one just because the merger, like he would have shown up higher than uh, before, just he said, in theory, a bigger base to draw from. But yeah, if it, if Stephen Harper shown anything, is that you, you don't need charisma to be successful in Canadian politics. So there's no good news in here for the Conservatives. A bit of bad news, possibly, outside the margin of error for the NDP. They're still in the midst of the leadership race, so there's that hope that one of these five candidates will inspire people when they win sometime in September. We... Yeah, we'll have to see on that. The uh, Beaverton ran an amusing article today about uh, people or researchers being unable to confirm that the NDP leadership race exists or was a figment. Well, we didn't even talk about the block leadership race that happened. And To be fair, I think most of Canada forgot the block uh, had a leadership race. I had to be reminded that their leader is actually sitting in the National <laughs> Assembly right now and commutes to Ottawa to talk to his, his I think, caucus. It goes to show how much of a non-entity they are in federal politics now that we, who do a politics podcast, didn't pay attention and can't even remember the gender of the leader. But while we're on Quebec, they're in the news because the province is potentially scoring a win with the federal government. Trudeau has announced a new bill that will allow him to give some of the remaining long gun registry data that still exists from the Crutchian era to Quebec. Most of this data was destroyed after conservatives branded a boondoggle and everyone basically went, this well, is... I think when your $2 million program becomes a $2 billion program, it, it's not just the opposition party that gets the branded a boondoggle. Everybody does. But following a number of court battles after the conservatives tried to kill the bill, there is still some data being held up by the courts relevant to Quebec gun owners. Only that data is at least three years old, I believe. And it wasn't all that good when it was current either. But I guess Quebec has created its own gun registry and <laughs> is hoping to use access to information to get this data through this new bill to bring it in, which just seems... Like, this just seems like a bad idea for Trudeau to even wade into there. Why, like, give that, pardon the pun, ammunition to Andrew Scheer? <laughs> yeah, if, if anything, it would have been easier to drop the opposition to the court case quietly and let that get resolved. But, you know, maybe he didn't want to set the precedent or whatever. But yeah, the, the biggest confusion in all of this is why Quebec even wants the data. It, like I mentioned, it was pretty useless when the long gun registry still exists. It's out of date now. And, you know, if anything, this is just going to add bad data into what might be the good data Quebec has at the moment. Moving on from guns to satellites, the, this bit of controversy has erupted around the sale of Norsat, which is a Vancouver based firm that made satellite communication equipment used by Canada, the U.S. military, NATO, and right now the Chinese company Hytera Communications, which is partially owned by the state, is looking to acquire it. And the big problem here is that, you know, this is a company that made sensitive military equipment, and China's not on the friendliest terms with the U.S. and our other allies, and... Well, calling the U.S. an ally these days is apparently controversial, but but they're closer to us than China. Well, they haven't officially withdrawn from NATO yet, so I I think the ally designation is still fair, if not worth as much as it used to be. So what normally happen or what can happen in these cases is cabinet can order a in depth review of the security and defense concerns surrounding this, but this apparently wasn't conducted here. 
Although Innovation Science and Economic Development Minister uh, Navdeep Baines told Parliament it had in fact been subjected to a full review and Prime Minister Trudeau said that it's gotten the same review that every other acquisition gets, which you know, isn't exactly true. So you just kind of got a bit of a weird situation here where Cabinet kind of just approved a sale of a company that made sensitive national security equipment without really going through the full process. And it remains a bit of a mystery why. And the U.S. has raised concerns about this and may all be a moot point because there's a U.S. firm that's looking to also acquire Norsat. It does raise some serious concerns about kind of what the Trudeau government's approach to sales of companies that made sensitive equipment. Yeah, all the optics on this are pretty bad. And it seems like something that if we're going to approve these sort of foreign takeovers of key industries and key companies, you want to have your ducks in a row. You want to make sure you know what you're doing. And this just reeks of that sort of naivety that they should be passed by this point in their first mandate. And, and the weirdest thing about it is it just came on the heels of a defense review where they highlighted concerns of China's growing influence on the role of communicate satellites, communications, and cyber warfare as a growing concern and area where the military needs to be more engaged. But uh, speaking of the military, the Minister of National Defense has confirmed that Op Impact, which is what they're called in the anti-ISIS mission in Iraq right now, has been extended, or will be extended. Uh, this was in, in an interview last week with the West Block, where... Minister Sajan said Canada is committed to our coalition partners as part of Operation Impact and will be renewing the mission. It's not exactly clear from the statement if we'll be maintaining the exact same forces in the region and commitments or if we're going to be tweaking it a bit, but it does seem like it's continuing for the near future. This builds off of the coalition to fight terror in this region, at least, that sort of kicked off in 2014 under Harper Conservatives and was renewed a couple times under them before being expected to end under the Liberals, but now they've renewed it. What's always sort of struck me is just how incoherent almost the Liberals' approach to missions like this was. When they were in opposition and when they were campaigning, they criticized the Conservatives for their approach, but then haven't really done anything different. Well, they did take the fighters home. Yeah, they but, brought the fighters home, but then put more boots on the ground. Yeah, and we're still a special forces on the ground doing uh, forward air control for allied planes. So it seems a little, as you said, incoherent on why is it horrible for us to be dropping bombs, but not designating the targets where the bombs are to be dropped? It sort of goes with the hard power rhetoric they were playing up last week. But again, that's really just following on the conservatives' path of approach to foreign policy, at least in terms of war making. The liberals could do all kinds of different things. Obviously, they're not going to walk away from an alliance and a cooperative mission that we're involved in. But we could start to reposition ourselves within that but they don't appear interested in anything else so i guess that's why people like chantelle bear are saying in the toronto star liberal tory same old story well, i think that was in, in slightly more yeah. 600 words or more than that and that was less about their foreign policy and more the secrecy of the government and it's less than stellar ability to appoint people. And finally, there's a little bit of movement on the Liberals' attempt to change the House of Commons standing orders. They've sort of signaled that this next week they're going to finally put their changes to a motion in the House. This is what they've been trying to do for months, and actually about a year since the whole... Bill C-14 assisted dying debate erupted into Elbowgate. So we might get Elbowgate 2.0 this week. 
let's hope not. They basically want to change some of the rules around prorogation, omnibus. What they're not going to do is require a prime minister's question period where the prime minister only has to be in the house once a week. They're going to make that the trend they do, and they'll have Trudeau show up once a week, at least, to answer questions in question period. This all is going to still run up to a head because the NDP has already said they're not really going to support this motion, and the Conservatives are threatening to force up to 200 votes or more to delay the summer sitting if the Liberals want to actually get this through. And the other sort of angle with this is one of the changes is the idea that the government will no longer be able to put through omnibus bills, but at the same time, Trudeau's own budget bill, which we checked, we talked about, I believe, in episode 25, so about 15 weeks ago, is still tied up in the Senate. It hasn't become law yet because the Senate is now considering tearing the bill in half because the infrastructure bank the government wants to create is in there. And that doesn't really have anything to do with the budget necessarily. That could be a standalone bill. So the Senate's saying, you gave us this omnibus bill. Well, Trudeau is saying there should be no more omnibus bills. So fun times in the Liberal caucus and the House of Commons. And I think it's going to be the kind of background story that's really only going to be very... Or I think it's going to be the background story of 2016, 2017. That's probably really going to be only visible in hindsight. It's the Senate's kind of new sense of self and purpose when it comes to dealing with legislation. And they've taken kind of the little bit of extra legitimacy that's was conferred upon them by Trudeau's minor reforms to the appointment process and run with that. And it's it's not just the new senators. It's, you know, the old partisan hats are happy to take on that mantle of legitimacy too. And well, especially in the Conservative Party, now that they're the only, like, formal caucus in there, they have more power than the independents. Yeah, which does kind of raise the question of, you know, if one of the reasons the Supreme Court shot down Harper, some of Harper's proposals in the Senate reference was that, you know, those sorts of elections or having, you know, the premiers, you have names or the, the various options that were presented is that it would change the character of the Senate because they would take this newfound legitimacy and act in ways that's not consistent with the current constitutional framework. And it seems like the significantly reduced form has also led to that. Throwing it back to our first segment and the reference to how the UK was able to get through an election much faster, one of the things the UK did in 1911 was pass a Parliament Act that said the House of Lords cannot veto any bills of the House of Commons there. They can delay them, or they can kick them back, but they can't kill a bill. Meanwhile, we've had our Senate, not recently to my knowledge, but they have in the past killed legislation passed by the democratically elected chamber. The UK's thinking being the people who get voted in have the ultimate authority, not the old people who got appointed decades ago. So that would be a change I think Canadians could kind of get behind if he wants to keep the Senate in its same rough form, is start making these early 20th century British updates to the Canadian Senate. And maybe start to put some fences around how much latitude and freedom. But getting back to the House standing orders, Trudeau's really desperate to make these changes to sort of keep through a couple of the accountability promises that he's made in the election. Why he's keeping these promises and not other ones, we'll never know. But this is one that's really going to upset the opposition and... I think we're going to see more sparks fly in the House of Commons this next week. Yeah, it's definitely a sore spot. And this does appear to be motivated by, in part by their lack of success actually passing legislation, which, considering how what federal Canadian politics are and parties are, it's, it's actually an accomplishment to be that unsuccessful at passing bills here. Unfortunately, Trudeau's response seems to be, we'll change the rules rather than We'll play the suck, game better. Yeah, we'll we'll suck less at actually doing the parliamentary procedures and stuff to get 
bills through into law. My last comment on this is just to once again recommend the boys in short pants. Those guys follow this specific debate much closer than we do, and they can tear apart why Trudeau's going off the deep end on this or where maybe there's a reasonable point. I'll also echo that and yeah, definitely check them out. They're kind of the Ottawa insiders who have a lot more kind of in-depth knowledge of these sorts of parliamentary shenanigans. And that has been Politos. Find links to the stories mentioned in the show notes at politos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PolitosPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and join the Politos community at patreon.com slash And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.